you're listening to Inside Schizophrenia, hosted by Rachel Starr Withers, an advocate who lives openly with schizophrenia. We're talking to experts about all aspects of life with this condition. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Inside Schizophrenia, a Healthline Media podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Starr Withers, here with my co-host, Gabe Howard, and today's episode is about psychiatric service dogs for schizophrenia. I only know about C&I dogs, which is, I think, the base level of knowledge that most people have about service animals. Everybody seems to know C&I dogs, and then the knowledge diminishes greatly after that. Yes, and I, th- I think we also know a little bit as far as what we see in the news, the different controversy stories, the peacock. The emotional support animals. I think, yeah, that that's the one that always comes up is the woman and the peacock, because you're like, how is the peacock going to get on the plane? And That was just the story that went viral, led to so many just questions. I remember when that story first came out and everybody's like, ah, this is why we need to ban these animals. And that's too far, right? Because service animals, C&I dogs, for example, they serve a valuable purpose. We needed to help society understand the difference between the emotional support animal and the service animal. And uh, you found an incredible guest who has been working with animals his entire life, Yes, we spoke with Sean Getkowski of Dog Training Elite Charlotte. He has a facility where he specially trains different types, all types of service dogs, therapy dogs, lots of different things. So he was so cool to talk to. Psychiatric service dog. So that is a type of service dog that assists with mental or psychiatric disabilities. So obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, bipolar, and some other different ones. So many people are obsessed with their pets. Here in America, 63.4 million American households, over half of the American population, has at least one dog. The U.S. pet industry reached $99 billion in sales last year. So the pets are everywhere. Like, it's, it's just like a huge money-making thing. And then you have mental illness. And one in four adults are considered to have some type of mental illness from depression to bipolar, schizophrenia, different things like that. However, only 0.9% of people with mental illnesses have a psychiatric service dog. And the psychiatric service dog is an important distinction in that statement. Certainly, scores of people with mental illness have used animals in their recovery, in their treatment, just by going for a walk or loving their own animals or caring or helping with routine, etc. But only 0.9% of people with mental illness have had a trained psychiatric service animal trained to do a task that meets all of the requirements that Sean is going to tell us about later in the show. And that's very important to understand the difference because as as we learned, you, you can't just put a vest on an animal and be like, boom, service animal. It doesn't work that way. And I think that maybe, especially you know, when the peacock story went viral, people were like, oh, is this all these animals are? Just somebody wearing a $9 vest from Amazon? But it's not. Yes, and the psychiatric service dogs, so these are ones specially trained to assist with a mental disorder of some type. The U.S. military actually did a report about psychiatric service dogs being used for veterans who had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And the U.S. military found that 82% of those who had a PTSD diagnosis reported symptom reduction after being partnered with a psychiatric service dog. 82%. And another 40% were able to decrease their medication. Just those two numbers alone, and I know we're talking about PTSD, not schizophrenia, but if you tell me, hey, there's this new therapy, there's this new drug on the market that's been found to help 82% of people, that's like amazing. And people would be clamoring to sign up for it and to try it. While we all love our animals and our animals are helpful, we want to understand that we're discussing the difference between the psychiatric service animal and, uh, for example, Rachel Starr's pet, Toto, which is not a psychiatric service animal. Poor Totes. He he is not. (laughs) So there's been like throughout recent history, people using dogs specifically to help those with disabilities has been a thing. However, for psychiatric uses, supposedly the first psychiatric dog would have been from actually World War II. And it was it was Smokey. He was a four pound Yorkshire terrier who actually served in different hospitals assisting the nurses and the wounded. And I I just thought that was the cutest thing ever. So just this little four pound fluff. And he was actually transferred then as the war ended, he came back to America. So he, he got to stay with the nurses and he continued working with different vets and stuff. The important thing to remember is that they figured out a need and they trained a, an animal to resolve it. This is very important when determining what a psychiatric service animal is. You've got an issue or a problem or something that you need help with. And then the animal is trained to assist with it. Yes. And now, Gabe, you you have a dog, just like I have. And it's really funny. Over the years, one of the biggest things that's helped me was having a little animal friend. A little, a little, I always say a little fluff. Of my three dogs that I've had, the one that connected with me the most was named Toto. And he was a little hellion. He would not be considered appropriate for service animal work in any way. He hated everyone and everything in the world with the exception of me. But the one great thing about Toto was that he could tell when I was mentally off before I could. And it wasn't something that I trained him to do. It was just very odd because he could tell and he would start acting a certain way and he would become incredibly clingy. He would wake me up sometimes and I would know, okay, something's wrong with me. And sure enough, the next few hours, I might start hallucinating. That was so amazing to me that he had that little sense about him. When I look back at some of the really bad times in my life, uh, there was a few years ago a really bad time with suicide, and he went insane. He was just the most annoying little animal in the world, and it's like he could tell I was depressed, and it was like, oh no, you're going to take me out. You're going to go on a walk right now. And I, I do. I do think this little dog like saved my life numerous times. So I believe very much that, you know, animals can have a connection with you and help everybody. It isn't just service animals. 
and that's remarkable, right? But I also know that your mother provides you lots and lots of care. But if you went and got her a little vest from Amazon and said, my mom's a doctor now, I would say, no, that's that's not how any of this works. And I think that's sometimes where we get into trouble. We have these animals that are that are perfect for us and, and we love them and they're beautiful and they, they make our lives better. And listen, you don't have to have a mental illness to have your life be made better by an animal. Yes. But it's important to understand that... That just means that the dog is making your life better. It doesn't mean that the dog is trained. Yes. I, I like the idea of the little vest for my mom, though. I mean, <laughs> she, I think she might jump at that to put a little vest on when we go out and be like, personal doctor. <laughs> Rachel, I, I understand this desire to smack a little vest on your dog and and take it with you everywhere you go. You, you know, when, I, when I'm suffering from depression, when I'm having anxiety, and then insomnia enters. So I, I'm tired. I can't sleep. I'm depressed. I'm pessimistic. I'm anxious. I think bad things are going to happen. And, and my little 25-pound schnauzer climbs up on my lap and, and puts his little snout on me and looks me in the eyes. I, I swear he's looking into my soul and saying, Daddy, it's, it's chill. You got me. And, you know, I pet him, which is like, like tactile feel, it calms me down. And in fact, when this happens, if he's not around, I'll call him. I'll just be like, Peppy here, because I, I want that. And I understand I've wanted to do it myself to just pick him up and carry him on an airplane or to a stressful meeting or, but it, it, it's important to understand that that is not only dangerous for you, it's dangerous for the people around us. But I don't want anybody to hear, and I think this is what I'm afraid of, Rachel. I'm afraid somebody's going to say, well, they're saying that unless your dog is a service animal, they don't do you any good. And, and I don't want people to hear that. Your your puppy can do a lot of good, as can your cats and pocket pets and birds and on and on and on. We just need to understand that there's a clear demarcation between our loving animals that help us and our service animals that work for us. So Gabe, your dog Peppy and my dog Toto and Totes, they would actually just be companion animals. That's all they were. While they did help us quite a bit, neither of them have been trained to do a task that would help our mental disorder. So yes, they do both help us and it's been wonderful having them, but they're just considered companion animals. One of the things I mentioned about Toto was that he hated everyone and everything in the world except for me. So it was next to impossible to take him in public because he would want to attack viciously everybody. <laughs> he was just, and he was adorable. He was a little five pounds of just pure fluff. So everyone wants to pet it. The kids like would run over and I'm like, no, <laughs> because he's like, Rah! like just <laughs> full on wants to like bite their faces off. And I was just like, get back, get back, children, get back. And it didn't help that I put a little bandana on him. So he was just like painfully cute. Like it was just adorable. And yeah, no, I I did make it harder on myself by making him extra cuter. But that would be horrible if I walked around, if I did put a little vest on him, right? And I did tell people that, hey, he helps me with my schizophrenia out in public because he was honestly a danger (laughs) to other people. That's another big piece of having a companion animal and a service animal is that training that goes into it. In general, The term is assistance dog. Now, depending on what country you're in, the terms change a little. But in the U.S., we tend to say an assistance dog or a service dog. Now, with an assistance dog, they have to be trained to do certain types of tasks to help with the disability. So the main things that 
to qualify as an assistant dog is that the partner, the human partner, must be disabled in some way that you would actually be diagnosed with. So not just your own diagnosis. It does need to be something that there's been a medical diagnosis of. And the dog, the assistance dog, has to be trained to help with that disability in a very specific way. So not just any general training. So Gabe, your service dog might do different things than my service dog. And one of the things to understand is that it is very, very specific. A always equals B with the C result. Let's go back to our seeing eye dog analogy. A seeing eye dog is trained to lead a person who is visually impaired. They know when to stop so that you don't walk out in traffic. They know to keep you on the sidewalk. To be an assistance dog, it also cannot be a nuisance to the public. It needs to be a very well-behaved dog. Its main focus is on the person with the disability. What was interesting is that there is another type of assistance dog that I'd never heard of, Gabe, but a facility dog. And those are dogs who aren't trained to work with one person, but they do a task at a different facility. There are ones that work in different medical facilities who are specially trained to notice like people becoming sick from something. These dogs live at a facility, though. This isn't something that I would personally own, but they are trained in a very specific task for a large group of people. I can't say that I've ever seen a facility dog in any places, but I was reading about the different ones and some that did work at mental health facilities with live-in patients and things. And I, it's an interesting concept and I think a very cool thing in, in a hospital setting. I could not agree more. And again, it's, it's a working animal. The other thing I think people get tangled up in is emotional support animal and then therapy dog. An emotional support animal, that can be any animal that helps you emotionally, helps you deal with things. They might have had some light training, but again, they can't do those tasks. The tasks are what is missing. A therapy dog, that is where you can go through different training, and there's actually a programs that you enroll in and your dog has to pass, but those are the dogs that can go to hospitals, retirement homes, nursing homes, schools, libraries, and that's like a very friendly dog that kind of just helps everybody. So while a therapy dog also is very important and has training, not a service dog. Actual service dogs. Okay, so the guide dogs, that's what everyone thinks about, are the dogs for blind people. I think that's what most people picture in their mind when it comes to any type of service dog. You automatically assume for a blind person. Another type is hearing. So if you have any kind of hearing problems, you have dogs that are specially trained to uh, alert their uh, handler for different like sounds and things that can actually help wake the person up. There are mobility assistance dogs. So they tend to be bigger if you have problems like getting up and things like that. So a Yorkie would not be a good mobility assistance dog. But the bigger dogs are really good for helping, especially people who aren't steady on their feet. Medical response dogs. I think these are the coolest because they're trained to alert people who have epilepsy that they're about to have a seizure. They're able to detect diabetes like when blood sugar is getting off. It's amazing to think that dogs can do that. 
And another type is the autism assistance dogs. And that's something that's been growing um, the past few years because they've noticed that children with autism, they have such a hard time anyway in the world. But something about a dog really helps them adjust. And having an autism assistant dog that was first introduced in 1997. So it's been growing since then. Obviously, schizophrenia and autism are two different things. But autism service dogs can be helped to watch children. When a child starts wandering off, the dog will actually go and alert the parent. The reason I bring this up is so many of us who have schizophrenia and serious mental disorders like that, that's kind of like how psychosis can be. You are mentally off. You might go and do something or start acting a certain way. And psychiatric service dogs, the different types, can be trained to alert somebody. Your caretaker. For me, it would be, let's say, my parents. It's just something to understand that it's out there. It is an option that's out there. Rachel, I know we've been talking a lot in the abstract about what a service dog is, what a service dog isn't, emotional support animals, companion animals. Let's talk about actual psychiatric service dogs. I'm trying to figure out all of the things that a person living with schizophrenia could utilize a psychiatric service dog for. Because at the end of the day, it's still a dog. I I imagine it's not going to like dispense your medication for you, right? It it can't remind you to do something. It doesn't have language skills. I, I am struggling to understand how a dog can help with schizophrenia. Actually, they can remind you to take your medications. Now, no, they're not going to be able to pop open the bottle for you and, and bring you one pill. But yes, they can actually be trained to bring you your medications, to alert you to take your medications. And honestly, the way this happens is that the dog is taught to be annoying. It does something like it may be taught to nudge you, to constantly paw at you. So something that will kind of make you, oh, I need to go do something. I'm supposed to be doing something right now. One of the things when it deals with hallucinations is dogs can be trained to do room searches. So if you're nervous about hallucinations, about going into rooms, the dog will go in first. It can kind of go around the full room. It can turn on the lights to the room, pretty much let you know it's safe to come in. They can notice when you might be obsessing over something. The dog is trained to notice those things. I shake a lot. So that would be something that if I were to have a psychiatric dog, they would train it to notice when I would start to kind of shake. Another thing with schizophrenia is with hallucinations and the anxiety and stuff, a technique that they can teach the different dogs to do is something called deep pressure or a grounding. And what the dog will do is when it notices that you are hallucinating or starting to have issues, the dog will come and it will sit on you. (laughs) It will sit on you. And depending on like, you know, the size of the dog, they can do different things um, from full on. Like, I don't want to say a massage (laughs) because it would be like a not very comfortable massage. But basically the dog comes and gets in your lap and is like pushing against you with its paws. The main thing is there, it's helping bring you back to reality. It serves as a distraction, but an intentional distraction that the dog repeats over and over again. So it becomes uh, essentially part of your your coping toolbox. You understand what it means when the dog is doing it. And because this has worked in the past, it's centering, 
right? It's just very centering. It's, it's almost magical. It's almost magical to see somebody getting ready to suffer from the symptoms of schizophrenia. And, and many of the symptoms cause a lot of suffering and see something as almost simplistic as, as a, a little animal crawling under their lap or nudging their leg or putting their paw on, on any place on them. Or like you said, massaging just, and it, it works. There's ample research over decades to show that the efficacy rate is incredible. But we, we better get into the cost and some of the problems. What it takes to actually to get one of these wonderfully trained assistance animals. And, and therein lies the problems, right? No podcast that's talking about service animals would be complete if we didn't handle, you know, the cons. There's pros and cons to everything. One of the large cons is cost. Yeah, cost for a trained service animal starts around 15,000 and can go on up to I think one of the the highest numbers I saw was around 60,000 and the price is going to depend on what type of training is required and it's not a quick thing this isn't a two week course <laughs> And the training is going to be the dog, but it's also going to be the owner. It's going to be the person with the disability. Like, you have to be trained how to use this dog effectively. And the dog's going to be trained, how do I help this person effectively? Yes, you should go through a trainer or organization of some sort. There's all types of different organizations. Unfortunately, yeah, right now we could all just Google dog vests and we can buy a vest offline. But yes, you do need to go through an actual trainer. A lot of these different organizations and trainers and whatnot, they also have waiting lists. A waiting list can be anywhere from a year to five years. When it comes to the cost, um, insurance usually does not cover service dogs. A lot of money goes into this, a lot of training, a lot of time. I don't want to say that the idea of a service dog is just for, let's say, people who are very well off. Because there are also fundraising organizations and different opportunities like that. But it isn't something that is going to be widely available for everybody. It isn't as simple as, yes, just going and getting a prescription. The doctor can't just write you a prescription for a service dog and you get one the next week. This is a process. Obviously, the time that it takes to train the dog and the cost of a dog are, are both barriers to accessing a service animal. Does breed play a role in this at all? I, can you just use any dog and turn it into a, a trained service dog or are there specific breeds? Is it just kind of a push? The answer is yes and no, Gabe. Of <laughs> <laughs> uh, The three main breeds that are used for psychiatric service dogs are Labradors, Golden Retrievers, and German Shepherd dogs. However, when they did a study across the board of service dogs, about 50% were found to have come from a registered breeder, followed by around 20% that had come from an animal shelter. A dog doesn't necessarily have to be a specific purebred However, it does need to be a dog that is confident and social and able to be trained to do all of these specific tasks. There are certain dogs that are going to be better at it than other types. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor.
and we're back talking about psychiatric service dogs. Everything that we have been talking about is all the stuff that we have learned from the internet and by reading studies and and from learning from people who have psychiatric service animals, but you really should hear it straight from the horse's mouth. See how I used an animal segue here? Rachel, tell us about our guest and what we are about to listen to, because you spent quite a bit of time learning the ropes from Sean. Yes, Sean over at Dog Training Elite Charlotte was amazing, and I loved researching to find our guest for this show. I just want to say I went through all these different websites trying to find a trainer that would be good to interview, and he has such a great website and these adorable photos of him and his family. It's a very very good family organization training these animals and just really, really cool guy. Let's go ahead and listen to that right now. I'm talking with Sean Gutkowski of Dog Training Elite Charlotte, who trains service dogs and pretty much all dogs. But Sean, today we're talking about service dogs. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. So right away, tell me, how is training a service dog different than just general obedience training for a dog? Great question. So the initial training is the same. All dogs have to go through our proprietary obedience training because we got to make sure that we push all dogs past distractions. While the dog may mind you in the home, when we get out in public spaces, there's going to be a lot more distractions. So obedience is getting the dog focus completely on you. All of our dogs go through obedience. Typically, that's where it would end. Once we go through the obedience and we teach you guys the methods on how to train, it's pretty much done. You guys just keep practicing that. When we go for the service, we then take the obedience and we we evolve it to public access. So then we start having sessions where you're going to frequent. If you fly a lot, we're going to do some stuff in the airport. If you go to the zoo a lot, we're going to go to the zoo and we're going to do the same obedience things But now we're going to elevate all the distractions to make sure, again, that that dog is focused on its handler and the job it's supposed to perform. And then we're going to start working on task training. Now we're actually going to teach that dog to perform a specific task or a job, if you will, for its handler. Now, there's so much in the news the past few years where it comes to emotional support animals versus service animals. Can you explain the difference to us? Yes. Yeah, so uh, an emotional service animal is one that just creates a positive environment, but a, a service dog actually performs a real world task, such as maybe an anxiety attack is starting to uh, manifest. The dog learns through training what that looks like before it actually becomes a, a full grown maybe uh, anxiety attack. And the dog can then do something and we train the dog to be able to recognize it over time. And the dog then performs a condition response to a behavior that its client, its handler is, you know, experiencing or, or starting to, to have, you know, maybe it's deep pressure therapy, you know, the dog can put its head on a lap or paw on the shoulder where an emotional support animal is, is just that it's just there to make you feel good, but it's, there's no training to a specific task. And what are some of the tasks that a psychiatric service dog could do? It's got to be creative. So there's no one size fits all here. So it's all what the client does. So say there's a client that when they start to kind of go away in their thoughts, maybe they uh, pick their skin or they start wringing their hand. We would want the dog to do like a pattern interrupt and put their nose in between there to kind of ground uh, the handler that uh, you're kind of starting to, to drift away there and have that, that negative or toxic behavior to yourself. I'm here to let you know and ground you. If the handler 
lies on the ground, we can get the dog to do deep pressure and actually lay on the client, kind of keep them safe, almost like a weighted blanket would, where it gives you that calming feeling. We have tactile stimulation. So again, if there's a panic behavior, we can again interrupt it or we can do watch my six where the dog monitors the handler's rear blind spot while stationary. It can walk backwards. So uh, while you're walking forward, you want the dog to watch behind you because you, you don't feel safe with your blind spot. We can train a dog to actually walk backwards to kind of keep an eye on your backside. We can do where if you're not comfortable with crowds, the dog can actually orbit around to create a buffer between you and maybe say you're in the uh, grocery store aisle and you're just not comfortable with people to your left side. We can train the dog to recognize that and the dog will go to the left side to create a buffer between you and somebody else in society. We can do uh, look for gaps in a crowd to get you out of it. If you don't like to be in large groups and all of a sudden you find yourself in a group of people where it's starting to kind of become more of a crowd, we can train the dog to look for that gap to get you out of there. We can do wake from night terrors. And usually it's a larger dog that does that. And we can do some things where the dog can recognize that. And that's what most people need to understand. A service dog is working all the time. A lot of things happen when you're asleep. That dog is really never shutting off. So it, it's a very profound responsibility to take on a, a service dog. And everybody needs to understand that that dog is working 100% of its life. So that's why it's really important to get that dog pushed past distractions because it's got to be completely focused in that time of need. I think. Not many people, when they think about mental health, think of psychiatric service dogs. I think most people picture the service dogs for the blind or mobility. And with the service dogs, they're able to help identify hallucinations. I have schizophrenia, and a lot of our listeners also have schizophrenia, and we deal with a lot of visual hallucinations and audio. How could a service dog help with that? We usually typically get the family involved because the family knows the physical manifestation of what an episode looks like, where maybe the person who has the disability may not know what it looks like to them. So the family is an integral part of what we do. And the family says, well, typically when she starts to have an episode, this is what she does. So we train the dog to start recognizing that behavior. Then we have the dog perform a task. And we do that by encouraging the dog and motivating it with treats and we pair a word to it. So let's just say that we need a dog to jump up and put its paws on your shoulders. We would use a word like hugs or cuddles and treats and entice that dog to get up on your shoulders while the client or the handler would say the word hugs and cuddles and we're going to slowly take the treat away and we're just going to say the word. Now the dog's going to continually jump up on the shoulders when it starts recognizing a, a certain condition. Eventually we take the word away. And now we just mock the behavior and the dog has learned through repetition. When mom does this, my job is to do that. And that's why it's so important that those dogs don't have any distractions when they're out in public. It's constantly watching mom. And when mom does this, my job is to do that. When you're saying the hallucinations, there's, there's a physical activity that happens along with the mental activity. And it's our job to find out what that physical uh, activity is so that we can pair that with a word, the motivation, such as a treat or, or lots of praise. And then we just we keep taking things away as we see that the dog is being conditioned to the response of the physical activity. What I'm hearing as you speak is that all of this training, it involves the client and it involves their support system. I think a lot of times when people think of support dogs, if they were going to get one, it's like, oh, I just go pick one up and we're good to go. But this sounds like it's, it's a lot. It's involving the whole family. Absolutely. We want a service dog to bond 
with its handler. And in our opinion, our modality, the bonding is the most crucial piece of this whole thing. And we believe in teaching uh, the client what we're doing, getting their feedback, because this has to be creative. We know just because I want to use hugs or cuddles, you may not want to use that word. You may not be comfortable with it. So we want your feedback. What works in it for you? And if, and we, it's really fun to come up with some really cool ideas and we really get to put this whole thing together. But yes, definitely the, the whole family and, and everybody that can be a part of this, the better. For a psychiatric service dog, the whole thing, what goes into that training? If I have a puppy and we're going to start this, tell me about what would that training look like? How long? What would we go through? So it all depends on the dog and obviously the client. And it's lots of creativity, lots of patience, lots of practice. Just like a professional athlete, he just doesn't show up on Sunday and play the game. He's every day in the gym, every day, just repetition. And we're building a conditioned response. So that's where the practice comes in. Kind of like you guys get in your car and you drive to work. You don't even think about it anymore. You don't even know how you got to work. It's just who drove the car. It's the same thing with a dog. We are just going to continually condition that dog that it doesn't even think about it anymore. So again, we would start out at 16 weeks, preferably would be the earliest, 14 to 16 weeks. And we would start with the obedience training. And we're going to start just teaching it basic concepts like come, sit, down, heal, place, quiet. Um, once we go through the obedience training, is when we start to go out into group classes where we get around other distractions. And our distractions are other well-mannered dogs, other uh, handlers going through training in parks where there's squirrels, there's cats, there's other dogs pulling and wanting to sniff. And we got to get these dogs to where zero reactivity to that. Once we get them past our, our group courses, then again, we would go to the public access. If it's a, a child that goes to school and needs a, a service dog for school, we would work with the school, uh, the teacher, the classroom, kind of explain the needs of the child, some of the things we can help to incorporate getting that dog in that school, answer any of their questions. If it's work, we work with the employer, uh, the employees kind of get everybody kind of comfortable, figure out what we need to do to kind of get everybody up to speed. Uh, again, if it's somebody that frequents a zoo every weekend, we're going to go to the zoo or if they go to Target or wherever it is, we're going to go to those places to kind of get the dog used to any distraction that we can. And we can't get a dog fully prepared for everything it's ever going to see in its life because you just never know. But we try as many things as we can just to where the dog is just solid. Nothing will shake that dog. And it's constantly focused on um, its handler. Once we go and we pass public access, then we typically start doing the task training. And that's where we kind of get creative. As far as a time frame on our service dog training, you know, we like a year. It's ongoing training, but we've had service dogs trained as fast as two to three months. It really depends on the dog, the breed, the drive to please its handler. Not every dog cares to please its handler. So if we plan on spending about 52 weeks with a client when we do service dog, but that's not to say that we can't have a task trained uh, way before then to where they are already a certified service dog to where they're able to get on the airlines or other public transportation. Now, there's another type of dog that kind of gets thrown in with emotional support, psychiatric service, and that's the therapy dog. Tell us what's a therapy dog exactly. Therapy dog works for other people. A service dog works for you. So a therapy dog is one that we would train uh, up till public access. It doesn't have to do task training. There's no specific task it's, it's learning to do. So it goes through our, our normal obedience it has to pass uh, AKC's canine good citizen requirements, and then it's got to pass public access to where, again, we take it out and nothing is going to distract us. Let's just say we have a young child, maybe went through a traumatic event, and it's not comfortable uh, talking to a counselor about that. You can provide a therapy dog, and that child will feel much more comfortable letting it out to that therapy dog. 
and finally getting it off its chest and, and being able to heal. What, in your opinion, is the hardest part of training? Training the owners. Okay. <laughs> um, it's the discipline of it is every day you need to work with your dog. It doesn't matter if it's 18 degrees outside, it's raining, it's cold, it's snowing. It's every day working with your dog and just realizing that this is it's a relationship like any other and you get out of it what you put into it. And that's something that I think is also overlooked when you think of different service dogs versus emotional support dogs is that, yeah, there is a lot of training and it's not magic. The owner has to be willing to do all of this. Absolutely. Uh, I know with a lot of obedience training, I go out and we'll do an evaluation of the dog and I you know, let them know what we recommend. And they say, oh, you just can't take a dog and train it. And you're absolutely right. Um, I think in television society, you, you see Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. There is no magic wand. It's just like anything else. We really have to teach the concepts, and it's just it's practice. If someone's interested in a service dog, what should their first steps be? First step would be to reach out to a trainer they trust, uh, they want to work with. Do your due diligence. It's a relationship. It's going to be part of your family. Make sure you bring this person in your home. You talk to them. You kind of see what they've been able to do in the community already. And then find out what they recommend is get their ideas on a breed that works well for their specific needs and let them help you find the dog. And how do you know if a service dog is right for you? Like, how should a client know, hey, this is what I need or maybe not? Maybe I would not be a good owner of a service dog. To be brutally honest, if you're somebody that wants to go work out but doesn't, wants to eat right but doesn't, wants to not sleep 12 hours a day but doesn't, and you can't discipline yourself to take care of yourself, you already know you're not going to be disciplined enough to take care of another life. And that's just the, the most brutal, honest way I can say it. If you're a disciplined person, you can put your mind to something and actually accomplish it, and you know without a shadow of a doubt, you're going to be disciplined in taking care of that dog. It's one thing to not take care of ourselves, but when there's another life that's relying on you, it's, it's, it's imperative that you are disciplined. Uh, again, a service dog is 24-7. That dog uh, needs to be with you all the time. You're not leaving it at home when you're on vacation or or want to go somewhere, um, that dog should be with you all the time. That is the definition of a real service dog. Tell us some of your success stories. How have some of the service dogs changed your clients' lives? You know, the, the best part, of be honest with you, Rachel, is just being able to get people to reintegrate in society. There's so many stories where people haven't been out of their house in years. There's concern about getting out in the general public. There's people that work they go to a job and they go straight home and there's, there's nothing in between. They're in their apartment, they're in their house. And that service dog kind of gives them an outlet. It makes me feel good. As people who have schizophrenia, there's a lot of stigma to it. And I'm a big pusher of dogs because it really almost knocks away the stigma because you'll have people just like, oh my God, can I pet your dog? And I think it's so good for people who suffer with symptoms of isolations like with schizophrenia to be able to get back into society and connecting with people. Absolutely. Yeah. Getting them reintegrated back into society and back into a, a, a normal world. And that's where what we're building a business on is, is that model right there. Well, Sean, your training is located in Charlotte, North Carolina. Tell our listeners how they can find out more about you. Dog Training Elite Charlotte. We service the whole Charlotte uh, and surrounding metro areas. You can visit us on dogtrainingelite.com backslash Charlotte, or you can go to our Facebook page, Dog Training Elite Charlotte, more than easy to get a hold of us.
and your website's great. It, it actually, for any of our listeners, if you go on there, they have all the different training classes. They have the different types of service dogs, what goes into training them. And then they also have obedience training, therapy dog training. So it, it's very interesting to just read through. And I like that how specific your website is about what goes into each type of training and what the client can expect. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Sean. It's been wonderful and hope our listeners check out dogtrainingelite.com. Thank you so much, Rachel. Sean seems like a very cool guy. Yes. And when we're talking about all this, and I think something that for me, Sean really brought it home was that a service dog is just another piece of a support system. I think that's a really good way to look at it. And I was also thinking as I was listening to Sean talking that the more tools we have, the better, right? It's not about which tool is best. It's about how many tools do we have access to. And then I kind of thought, well, wait a minute, this could really be a game changer if you're not Rachel and Gabe. You know, we talk a lot about how our family, our friends, the people that we live with will notice things before we do. Well, not everybody has family and friends. Not everybody lives with somebody. Not not everybody has access to humans 24-7. And if they do, there is some potential for caregiver burnout. And I was just thinking, you know, a, a service dog really exists to service you. That is their role. And they never think to themselves, wow, I wish I could go on a vacation or I could get a weekend off or my loved one is driving me nuts. And people who have service animals never think to themselves, ah, I need a break from my dog. It's quite the opposite. But I know I personally, and I'm I'm not going to speak for you, Rachel, but I've thought to myself, man, I wish my wife would just go away. I wish my mom would stop asking me if I was okay. So there's caregiver burnout, but there's also burnout of your caregivers. And I, I really see this as a solution in the support system space to all of those issues or potential problems as well. Is that how you see it? I I think there's a lot of opportunities with psychiatric surface dogs. I do think it's one of the areas that's underutilized for people with schizophrenia and other serious mental disorders. I've never had a doctor or anybody ever bring up such a thing. And only recently did I go to a health facility where they had a therapy dog there. And it was not a mental health facility. It was for something else. But that was the first time. And they had a little poster on the wall about, hi, this is the dog that's going to be, you know, around. I feel it made me more relaxed at the facility um, when I was talking to the doctors, when I was talking to the nurses. But yeah, it's just something that I haven't seen utilized much in our space. Like you said, Gabe, it's another tool. Is a service dog right for you? versus a just companion animal, emotional support animal versus an actual psychiatric service dog. I think one of the biggest questions when you're approaching this subject would be when you are out in public, is a symptom from your schizophrenia preventing you from doing certain things? And could a service dog help you with that? We talked, you know, in the very beginning about my little dog, Toto. I don't feel at the moment there's any place where a service dog would help me. I might want my little dog there because they're cute and adorable and everyone wants to, like, meet them and that makes me more outgoing, but there's not necessarily a symptom that it's addressing. 
However, let's say that I have a hard time flying. I have a hard time going to my job because of my hallucinations have gotten to a point where I can't always tell what's real and a service animal could help me with that. I think that's the difference there. Um, And I think that's just a personal question. And I think it might have to do with different times of your life. I don't think right now I personally need a service dog down the road 10 years. I could be in a very different place. Um, My schizophrenia could be in a very different place. And I might need some sort of additional help to go out in public and, you know, maintain a quote unquote normal life. Everybody needs to look at their situation. The different caregivers out there, the family, friends who are listening, you know, it's not just about the person. It is the whole family. It's whoever's going to be living in that house. You don't sign up for a service dog for one year. Is the whole family going to be able to take on this long-term commitment? And you need to make sure that everyone in the household understands that this dog is a service dog. So you don't have one member of the family kind of going against the training that is, <laughs> we've paid so much <laughs> invested in. <laughs> uh, but it is. It, and that's something, it, it's a whole, everybody who lives in that household will be affected by this. So it is something to think about. Um, and then the finances of it, looking into how would you get the dog to start with and then continue to care for it. Veterinary expenses, just kind of that general grooming expenses can be a lot for an animal. So it's not even just that upfront amount of money. You are committing to taking care of an animal for the next 10 years, say. And obviously, in addition to all of that, a dog involves time. Taking care of an animal will involve some time. So it's important to understand, in addition to the upfront costs, addition to the training costs, addition to the working through problems, addition to the disruption to the household, there is also just the fact that this is something that you need to do day in and day out. So it will take your time. And of course, there's expenses moving forward. So I don't want anybody to hear that this is a a magical cure, that it just success. We, the people who get the psychiatric service dog, have to put in time, energy, effort, and resources as well. It's not a magic cure. Just like everything in the schizophrenia world, it has its part that it handles well, and we have to do our part as well. Goods and bad, pluses and minuses, and it takes effort and diligence on the part of the person living with schizophrenia as well. This could just be a new tool to just kind of consider in your tool belt for dealing with (laughs) schizophrenia. And for my wonderful caregivers out there and friends and family, again, same thing. It's a tool for you. And even if it isn't something right now, it is something that you can consider for later in life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Inside Schizophrenia. Please like, share, subscribe, rate our podcast, and we'll see you next time here on Inside Schizophrenia. You've been listening to Inside Schizophrenia, a podcast from Psych Central and Healthline Media. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash IS or on your favorite podcast player. Your host, Rachel Star Withers, can be found online at rachelstarlive.com. Co-host, Gabe Howard, can be found online at gabehoward.com. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.